0: You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery.
2: You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host. Dr. Paul
3: Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Falta. Thanks again, Kevin, for the chance to do this. And today, we're going to be talking about a variety of topics, but one of the topics near and dear to me as a plant pathologist is our genes, or uh, resistance genes. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Jones from the... Uh, the Sainsbury Laboratory in uh, Norwich, England. Uh, Norwich is about uh, 100 miles, a little bit more than 100 miles northeast of London. And uh, this, he is one of the uh, premier researchers on the nature of of our genes. So we are thrilled to have you speak with us today, Jonathan. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. Pleasure to be with you. Well, um, so. so there's a lot of directions we could go in in this interview, but but I, I'm most interested in starting by hearing something about your perspective. Yeah, kind of why why did you get into plant science and what were some of the lessons that you learned along the way, especially you know the ones that are most salient. So let's let's start with that.
1: Well, when I was a kid, I uh, did math physics chemistry at school, but I really wanted to save the world from an ecological crisis, which I was an early subscriber to all these green magazines like The Ecologist. And I thought, you know, the world doesn't need more physicists and chemists. It needs some biologists. You know, very misconceived, actually, and naive. But it's been, it's been pretty good fun. I struggled with the ecology type stuff. Uh, it was a bit too descriptive for me. But once I discovered genetics, I, I found I really loved uh, plants uh, science and also plant science is, you know, plants are just amazing that they turn all that CO2 and light energy from the sun into sugar and, and we all depend on it. And, and how that all happens makes plants a um, fascinating object of study. Uh, so I did a PhD at the Plant Breeding Institute, in Cambridge, having done a degree in botany. And um, there I was. In, I was a bit of a, you know, <clears throat> long before. Uh, it became unfashionable. Um, a bit of a Marxist. Uh, you know, I was interested in how uh, interface between the public sector and the private sector. And the Plant Breeding Institute was a, was a terrific entity. It um, came up with varieties that really dominated the plant varieties of wheat, uh, in particular, but also barley and and sugar beet and a number of other crops that were grown by farmers in the in the seventies in the UK. Um, and uh, it left me with a strong sense that there's a require, you need a strong public uh, sector activity in this space. Uh, and the Plant Breeding Institute was very sadly privatized by Margaret Thatcher and her zeal in the late 80s. Um, then I did uh, a, a PhD. I worked on wheat chromosomes and, and rye chromosomes. And I, I was there at the time that cloning DNA from plants started. So I was able to work with some of the first uh, cloned plant DNA sequences, repeated DNA sequences from heterochromatin, with a, a leading guy in the field, uh, now retired, John Bedbrook, and a PhD with um, uh, my mentor was Dick Flavel. <coughs> Maybe you known some of you out there. Um, then I did a, a postdoc at uh, Harvard with Fred Alcibel, and that was pretty interesting, uh, working on symbiotic nitrogen fixation. What I learned there was how to work with these broad host-range plasmids that went on to be useful in uh, agrobacterium manipulation to deliver uh, DNA to plants. And so uh, I made some of the first transgenic plants when I took up a a position as a scientist at a company called Advanced Genetic Sciences in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. from 83 to 88. And that company um, was the first to bring a genetically modified organism uh, into the field, uh, in the case of uh, frostban, the ice minus bacteria, and <clears throat> they realized then just how irrational people can be about technology if it 's misrepresented or misperceived. This was a bacterium um, which was a plant pathology problem in that it, it carried a protein that triggered ice nucleation, and uh, the the ice nucleation caused damage to leaves of plants. And so, what was done was to, and this is built on work from Steve Lindau, Berkeley, um, mutate uh, the ice nucleation gene and release a strain that was otherwise identical. And it would colonize the leaf um, niches and exclude the um, ice plus bacteria, just thus reducing frost damage. (laughs) Uh, And it was, yeah, it never became a product in part because. Uh, of of misperceptions. I remember that work. I was a graduate student at the time, and
3: so by sort of outcompeting the ice nucleating strains of the bacterium, and um, you you would gain how much protection in
1: in frost? Um, how many degrees? Well, three or four degrees, I think. I mean, it would depend. You 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 you'd be uh, uh, you couldn't really count on totally um, occupying the whole you know, mesophyll space with uh, your, your chosen bacterial strain. Uh, but where you occupied most of it, you know, that, that, that's what lab experiments said uh, you could achieve.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and which is significant. I mean, that could be the difference between substantial damage and, uh, and you know, and and ability to just carry on with the crops. So.
1: And all the grapevines there, they had these so-called smudge pots where, you, you know, you, you tried – if you had these inversions – uh, of the uh, you, low temperature near the ground, you got all this frost damage, and so they'd they'd burn all kinds of nasty stuff to try and um, keep the fields warm enough that it wouldn't happen. Break mm-hmm. up the inversion.
3: Yeah. So you've been at the Sainsbury Lab, and I, I meant to say this, so I'll say it now. The Sainsbury Lab, for listeners, uh, is 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 uh, really a world leading institute working on um, plant microbe interactions, and 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 in fact, uh, you are uh certainly one of one of their uh premier uh, representatives and, and, and one of the graduate students that I was talking to about this interview he said oh the jones you know so <laughs> so so you're well you're well known uh well beyond uh, the sainsbury Lab. but but wh- you've been there for 28 years what are what
1: are some of your strong impressions of, well, of that uh, I, I, I primarily feel enormous um, good fortune actually um, the ags was starting to you know, ran out of money, and I was looking for another job, and it had to be a job where my uh, future wife Caroline Dean could also work. And um, she got a job at the John Innes Centre. I got a job at the Sainsbury Lab. <coughs> the Sainsbury Lab was funded out of David Sainsbury's private charity, um, and the idea is you had a core budget, which meant that you could make take sort of slightly riskier courses of action than the. Uh, the funding agencies would be likely to support <clears throat> with that, especially for someone who really didn't have a track record in the UK. So uh, when I started, the problem was that there was genetics that said there was something interesting going on in plant-pathogen interactions, the so-called gene-for-gene uh, interaction, the key of which is that there's a dominant resistance genes in uh, hosts that confer resistance. And to evade that recognition, pathogens have to come up with recessive mutations. You have to lose something that presumably enabled the plant to uh, to recognize them. And what on earth this was, you know, all a total mystery. So <coughs> uh, I worked on a system where there was uh, pioneering work by Pierre de Witt in Holland, in Um He cloned a couple of avirulence genes from a fungus called Cladosporium fulvum, a leaf mold pathogen of tomato, so basically, my mission was to do genetics t- to wrestle the resistance gene out of the g- genes out of the genome. <clears throat> we cloned these so-called CF genes, and actually they were cell surface receptors. They were the first cell surface leucine-rich repeat receptors shown to be important in immunity. Subsequently shown to be important in Drosophila and humans. And um, but we, you know, then the challenge was to figure out how they work. And uh, I have to say, we didn't make enormous progress in my lab. Uh, on that problem, uh, simultaneously, um, like early nineties, resistance genes were cloned uh, by others: um, Brian Staskiewicz, Barbara Baker, Greg Martin. And these these were intracellular proteins, and it made slightly more sense that uh, they they would be recognizing molecules uh, from at least some of the pathogens uh, that they conferred resistance to. <clears throat> but they were also rather puzzling, and they also had leucine rich repeats. So there was a lot of um fun at the time we, you know we'd, we'd call each other covertly in hushed tones on the phone and say my one's got lucy and rich repeats yeah, yeah. mine has too wow <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was that it, yeah. it was, it was pretty interesting yeah. um so the uh and, and then the course of course at that time was when um it like, was we, 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 we fairly soon after, Brian Staskovitz had cloned first bacterial avirulence gene with uh, the late, great Noel Keane. And uh, <coughs> these were proteins that it was very hard to make any sense of. We now know, of course, that they're delivered by type 3 secretion from bacteria into the host cell, that they are uh, so-called effectors, whose role it is to um, often suppress immunity, Um, and that the avirulence genes, so-called, encode recognized effectors. But for a long time, it was a big puzzle. Why on earth would these pathogens make molecules that enabled the plant to detect and resist them? What would be the point of that? And so we've now got a synthesis of, uh, you know, and it was, um, I guess, sort of one of my more important contributions with uh, 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 Jeff Dangle as well is, is to write, a review that constituted a synthesis of how there are cell surface receptors that detect pathogen molecules and activate defense. Then there are effectors delivered by pathogens that suppress that activation of defense. And then plants have evolved these intracellular receptors that that can detect the effectors, uh, or some of the effectors, and they only need to recognize one, uh, the effectors that... um, Plant, pathogens have evolved to to suppress host immunity. First of all, I'm, a, I'm an applied plant pathologist.
3: I, I work hard to understand the molecular components of, of the
1: things that I do. But,
3: um, but, but I am an applied plant pathologist. And and so during my career, uh, 26 years here at the University of Kentucky, th- this whole model that you're describing really emerged. It wasn't we didn't understand any of this when I was in graduate school. The the model of how. Um, pa- uh, plants um, have receptor molecules of, of a particular type that uh, then re- record the presence of the pathogen and signal, create the signal cascade, and ultimately lead to defense. That, this whole model was not even understood, and and it's really um, quite impressive and remarkable to tease out um, the complexity of this. So am I correct that there are parallels with these leucine-rich repeats with animal systems, I mean, is this, isn't this some, there some parallel there in defences in animal systems as well? I mean,
1: leucine repeats are just a protein module, uh, the core of which is a leucine XX leucine X leucine. And um, what they what that motif provides is a surface uh, on which different erection, interaction capacities um, can be presented or can evolve. So it's just very good for interactions and okay. so through um you know independent uh, evolution convergent evolution uh, plants and animals have deployed this motif uh to uh, in, in, as part of their recognition capacity um so so yes i mean i think the, the, and it was pretty much independently uh discovered in plants and animals so the plants sorry the animal immune system uh, at least in mammals You've got two levels of it. You've got the innate system, um, which is based on encoded recognition capacities. And then you've got the adaptive immune system, the, uh, you know, the, the antibody system, and uh, which is more based on, let's say, somatically evolved uh, recognition capacities. Um, but the innate immune system of plants and animals is... Uh, um, certainly has some commonalities in fact mm-hmm. we just wrote a review that came out in science a couple of weeks ago um called something like innate, innate intracellular uh, immune surveillance devices in plants and animals and, and we yeah. and we cover that overlap yeah.
3: yeah that that is actually actually the paper that i saw the title of which and thought yeah that that's uh pretty uh interesting so uh we're going to take a short break, and, uh, and we're talking to Dr. Jonathan Jones from the Sainsbury Lab in Norwich, England. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue to talk about our genes, uh, resistance genes, and uh, other aspects of um, uh, molecular biology and disease management. Don't go away.
2: Don't go away. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. As always, we're excited to deliver the exciting stories of how DNA-based technologies are providing new solutions for people all over the planet. We're learning more about who we are as a species, the life around us, and how we can produce better food for more people with sensitivity to this big stupid rock in space that sustains us. This podcast is funded 100% by Kevin Fulta and comes to you free each week for your listening pleasure. We actively turn away advertisers that could defray the costs of this enterprise because that would simply reinforce the beliefs of the whistleblowing merchants of doubt that believe education is simply a tentacle of Corporate Conspiracy. You can help by writing a review on iTunes, tell your friends, write a review on a blog, or leave some positive thoughts on the BuzzFeed article about me, Fern Blazer. Most of all, share the beautiful stories of science that you hear each week. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
3: And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Jonathan Jones from the Sainsbury Lab in Norwich, England. And once again, Jonathan, thanks for, um, for your time and, and, and sharing your knowledge with us. So the this, this whole concept of an R gene or resistance gene and, and, and its role as a receptor molecule to know that the plant is infected and to tr- trigger defenses, this, this whole concept and the details of this um, rather complex topic is, it, have been studied by you and Dangle and, and others. So, w- we have a lot of listeners on, uh, of the podcast series that, that will want to know. So, you know, that's very interesting, but why do we, wh- how does that help us? Yeah.
1: Um, well, plant breeders have used disease resistance genes for a very long time. Um, previously, uh, I guess relatively unconsciously, they just select the stuff that didn't die. Uh, and then now, in a much more programmed way, now there are uh, you, can, you can define a particular locus and, and develop molecular markers to help you breed for it. Um, I think that the the, the you might take a, a perverse view of resistance genes and say, well, look, every time you breed a new variety with some new resistance gene and you, and you plant it out there, then pathogens mutate to overcome it. So. They're pretty useless, aren't they? What's the uh, point, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and and, um, and, and in fact, underline that would be the question. So, if they're so useless, how did they evolve? Mm. And, and the answer is, uh, to my mind, at least, I'm a follower of uh, Chris Munt and uh, Bruce McDonald and people like that. On it, mm-hmm. um, the quote natural environment for which, under which these resistance genes evolved, uh, is one where you have heterogeneity. Uh, in the In the genetics of the of the population, you have mixed populations of individuals, and you also often have um, other species growing there so if in any particular population any particular resistance gene is relatively rare, the selection on the pathogen to overcome that resistance gene is going to be weak, especially as if the pathogen 's got to grow on some other uh, uh, plant in that population with a different combination of resistance gene alleles. So what kills you uh, with respect to using resistance is uh, is the monocultures. So if you've got a plant where you've got millions of genetically identical plants and one resistance gene, then any pathogen race that can mutate to overcome that resistance gene is in like Flynn. Um, So So the question is how do you cope with that? Uh, so one solution would be that you clone lots of resistance genes, and you put them into um, different uh, plants of the same genotype of that variety, and then you plant a mixture. But, of course, you're not going to do that if every time you do it, it costs you tens of millions to register each transgenic event. So it's just actually, under current uh, circumstances, not practical for the breeding companies. Um, the alternative is that I think this is a, a plausible um, uh, approach, there's certainly one we're following, is you make a stack. So here's the argument. You've got a plant that's got a resistance gene that you've put into it, um, then it's easy for the pathogen to overta- mutate to overcome it. If it's got three different resistance genes that recognize three different pathogen molecules to, to make a mutation that overcomes it, to make a, a new race that overcomes those three, you've got to have three independent mutations, and that's going to be rare. Mm-hmm. You're not going to say it's never going to happen. You know, never bet against the pathogen, but because uh, there's billions of them. Um, mm-hmm. But the the um, the rate at which you get a resist- your resistance mechanism overcome is going to be a lot lower if you can deploy a stack of three resistance genes or more mm-hmm. uh, in the when the, in, at the one locus in the one plant. Furthermore, if you've cloned some resistance genes and you can deploy them together, uh, one locus where you put them in using the GM method, um, then you uh, um, reduce the risk or you make it impossible for careless plant breeders to separate them and put out plants with only one gene in that are a hostage to fortune from the standpoint of Mm. um, selecting for variants that can overcome each of those genes. So they're always deployed together. Then Mm. it's going to be harder for the pathogen to even have some pre-existing variation that can overcome uh, one of them. Um, And, of course, if you're thinking about clone genes, then that you've got the opportunity to reach out into other species as a source of resistance. And the archetypal or paradigmatic example of this was the work of uh, Brian Staskiewicz, who studied uh, xanthomonas resistance in tomato and pepper. Xanthomonas um, resistance in in tomato is essentially there are very few genetic resources you can use, but there's a lot of variation in pepper that you can use. So he cloned a gene called BS2, bacterial spot resistance Mm 2, Put it into tomato, lo and behold, it confers Xanthomonas resistance in fields in Florida, uh, which are you know very severely damaged by Xanthomonas. So we've done a similar thing. Um, soybean in Brazil is uh, uh, hit by Asian soybean rust, blew in from Africa. Um, it's a $2 billion a year problem or it's a $2 billion a year fungicide market. You mm-hmm. might want to think if you're a, a shareholder of Bayer or BASF or Syngenta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but wouldn't it be better if we could actually come up with a genotype that's resistant? So we've cloned uh, here at the Sainsbury Blab a gene from Pigeon pea in collaboration with Sergio Bromenshanko in uh, Brazil. Uh, the a gene for pigeon P, from Pigeon P for Asian soybean rust resistance, and we've got a couple more in the pipeline, and we hope that we'll be able to generate a stack that will but essentially turns soybean into a non-host for mm. um, Asian soybean rust. And we're trying to do the same for in my lab for um, potato late blight. So there, you know, Solanum nigrum and Solanum americanum, its diploid ancestor, basically are immune to um, Phytophthora infestans, the late blight pathogen of potato. So if we can clone enough genes out of these and stack them up in our cultivated varieties, maybe we can turn cultivated potato into a non-host potato late blight, which is a Probably a five to eight billion dollar a year problem worldwide. Mm-hmm. That's the direction of travel.
3: Yeah, and of course, that's the disease that uh, was was uh, you know underlying the the Irish potato famine. So exactly. uh, we still we still deal with it today. So there there are a couple of things that I w- think are worth highlighting from your comments. One, the, these examples, the bacterial spot example, that that from pepper placed in tomato. And functioning beautifully, um, to, in, to uh, create a resistant plant. I want to remind everybody that all we're, all what's happening is, is an, an R gene, a receptor molecule, a gene for a receptor molecule is being moved. So the defenses that the plant, um, uh fights back with are the same defenses that it the, its own natural defenses it's just the exactly. receptor molecule that that triggers the you know the 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 path the plant to respond in in a defensive way um and and the other thing is that uh i found interesting i i knew about this idea of stacking genes in you know, a say a construct where you've putting um our genes and together it to to move as one in in the breeding process, not only does that reduce the probability of of a virulent pathogen overcoming those those genes, but as you said, uh, it it's easier for the breeder to keep the, these genes together um, if they're uh, if they're a constructed uh, construct in versus a a um, you know independent genes that segregate independently through the the uh, hybridization and
1: breed. right. So there's just one locus to track. Plus you, you, you avoid the linkage drag where you bring in and cyst to your gene of interest bad alleles of other genes that compromise yield, which is a big problem that breeders have to wrestle with. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, 21st, what 21st century breeding ought to look like is to be able mm. to do this. Hmm. Wonderful. So you… you um have done published some
3: recent recent work on uh, mining of uh, genomes for our genes in in sort of yeah. a
1: high throughput capacity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So it uses um, a you know well rehearsed uh, method that molecular biologists can use, which is uh, sequence capture. So you know we know that you know in a genome like potato, which is maybe let's say a gigabase of DNA there's there's uh, um, seven hundred and fifty resistance genes, so that's uh maybe two gig- megabase of, of of DNA corresponding to resistance genes so if we're interested in in understanding genetic variation for resistance um, in other words cloning new resistance genes um, we we only want to sequence the resistance genes and uh, you can dial up now with the with companies i' probably Shouldn't be endorsing any particular vendor, but um, you know, you can dial up, we, you know, buy 20,000 oligos uh, that are biotinylated, uh, RNA oligos that are 120 ms, corresponding to 2.4 megabase of sequence. Um, you can specify the sequences of these, you order them, you know, $2,500 or something, uh, you get them back, and then you um, make your your library of DNA for you know next-gen sequencing, whether Illumina or longer-read platforms, um, and uh, you then sort of melt the, 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 those DNA molecules and anneal to the uh, um, capture molecules that you've, you've ordered, that you've bought, and then you stick those to a, some support, streptavidin, and you wash away all the other stuff that you don't care about. And then when you release and sequence, you're, more or less just sequencing the R genes. In fact, you get about 50 to 70% of your reads are from uh, the resistance genes. And that means that you can sequence them with much better depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can assemble them with, with much uh, more certainty. You know, all these assembly al- algorithms are good but imperfect. Uh, if you can combine them with longer reads or greater read depth, you get better assemblies. And, and so for cloning resistance genes now, we can uh, assemble essentially all the genes... With the reading frame plus 2 kb either side, using uh, the long read platform PacBio, uh, and then we can identify six or seven or eight co-segregating genes that are uh, expressed, then we, we we basically transform them in either transiently or stably, and you can identify which guy's doing the business. So um, it it means you don't have to make back libraries to clone your resistance genes anymore. Uh, and that is a godsend. I can tell you, it's bloody. It, it reduces the workload immensely.
3: Sort of uh, blowing open the doors to uh, the available R genes that that are existing among the various plants available to us. Yes. So, so uh, yeah. So this is uh, you, you know, there's just so many things I've seen out of your la- out of your lab, and you know, as I've looked through, and that was certainly one. So, so one of the topics as an educator that I that I, um, you know, run into and get questions about when I talk about genetic engineering, is the concept of transgenes versus um, cisgenes and and w- potential ecological uh, issues associated with those. So for the for the audience' sake, um, the. First of all, transgenes are those, well, cisgenes are genes that come from within the normal breeding pool of a, of a plant species. And, um, the simplest way would be potato to potato or, or wild relative of potato to potato. That's, those would be all considered cisgenes. Uh, whereas transgenes are genes that have been moved, um, through the genetic engineering process from outside the breeding pool of a, of a plant into that, into that breeding pool. The um, so what first of all, have that explained that well, and secondly, what considerations do you have regarding whether those sorts of issues, transgenes, uh, would represent an ecological uh issue or risk to um, wild populations?
1: Yeah, I'm never very comfortable with this, you know, this categorization to be honest, because mm-hmm. um, you know, if you buy into it, you're almost capitulating to the argument that there's something wrong with transgenes, uh which there isn't uh, as far as i'm concerned um so you know the, the i mean agrobacterium i i think that uh, there's a gm method which uses um, agrobacterium uh, a plant pathogen uh, which has naturally evolved to deliver dna to host cells as part of its uh, virulence strategy and um it's the sweet potato is uh, carries an event from an infection with Agrobacterium from you know thousands of years ago, uh, the 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 GM method that we use these days delivers some DNA to you know a, an unpredictable and, and that's the, the, the only criticism you can make of the method I think uh, position in the genome that, that confers a, a trait and I think all you need to consider about a, a gene that's gone in is whether or not it confers a useful trait. If it if you've got a BT, you know, crystal, uh, crystal protein from Bacillus thuringiensis that confers insect resistance. Then you get end up with a plant that's got a useful trait, which is insect resistance and reduction in the need to apply um, insecticides, which are all you know, nerve toxins. So less nerve toxins applications is a good thing. So you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, this uh, distinction between cisgene and transgene. So let's let's take the example of RPI VNT1. Uh, Phytohormone resistance gene from Solanum venturii. So that gene, if I put it into potato transgenically, because you could have bred it in, you could say, well, that's a cis gene. But if I put it into tomato, which is also susceptible to late blight, then it's a trans gene. But it's the same gene. So, so why, why get hung up on 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 uh, this distinction? Um, and I think, I can understand people thinking, well, let's just put plant genes into plants. Uh, if, we could, if we could have cis genes as um, uh, any plant gene in a plant, then I could live with that. That would be fine. And then if you put in something like a bacterial gene for insect resistance, then, you know, maybe. But, you know, is it more likely or less likely to be uh, damaging to human health? I mean, you know, plants make some pretty poisonous compounds like strychnine, for example. That's natural. Strychnine is really not – you could take a couple of genes from a plant and put them in – for strychnine biosynthesis and put them into another plant, um, and you could call it a cis gene, but, it, but that would be a lot more dangerous than taking a BT gene from a bacterium and put it into a plant for insect control.
3: Yeah, so ultimately there's there's a strong argument for, uh, as, as our National Academy of Sciences recently said and has affirmed multiple times, paying attention to the trade itself and what it does, not the method by which the the gene was 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 moved,
1: exactly. And I mean, I think that the 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 gene editing um, advances enable one to to try and reframe uh, the debate, because you know I think you could argue you could argue well first of all with editing you can make mutations in any particular gene that um, and some of those loss of function mutations are uh, beneficial. Um, you know the MLO gene. When you mutate it, results in elevated resistance to powdery mildew. Uh, for example, in pretty much any plant, you 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 do that. Um, but where you, what, what we, I tell you what my dream is is is, uh, and we're trying this sort of thing right now with tomato and and and, and soon to be potato, where we take um, for for a gene like the RPI one gene, which is a uh, uh, from Solanum venturii first blight resistance you can see the ortholog of it in cultivated potato or in tomato so if we can just recombine an, uh that reading frame into the corresponding position in the tomato i think i think that's just breeding because you're using homologous recombination mm-hmm. uh in the same way as breeders use homologous recombination that is confined to to, to the stage of meiosis So we we basically we we force some homologous recombination in the lab, but we put it in a precise position, and the outcome is a plant that's got an extra extra antenna function, extra capacity to perceive uh, molecules and pathogens, and and then activate its its uh, very effective defenses. It's it's normally Uh, naturally uh, natural defenses. Yeah. Exactly. So so So, anyway, I think that's that's breeding. That's to my mind. We might want to call it knock-in breeding to uh, distinguish Mm -hmm. it from. Um, You know, quotes conventional breeding. But Mm -hmm. it's, uh, and and at that point, it's a plant gene and a plant, and there's nothing else in there. Mm -hmm. And and I hope to goodness it'll be regulated just as breeding.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
1: good. Well, And and so
3: I'll add, too, to the discussion. I You know, I, I like to explore uh, all aspects of the issues uh, related to genetic engineering. But, you know, a good, very good argument was made by somebody I follow on Twitter, and he pointed out that there are ecological risks. Well, and we probably know this, both of us, you and I, but there are ecological risks to not using technology, too. And so, you know, what, I, I particularly see genetic engineering as a plant pathologist as a way to reduce pesticide use. And uh, there's no doubt that we, we can't expect growers to reduce pesticide use unless we give them alternatives and, and I think that's what your lab is is doing with these uh, rapid cloning um, approaches and, and even identifying first of all what our genes are I mean this is all part of you know developing resistance in in our
1: crops That's exactly where we want to get to and, and, and interestingly, David Sainsbury um, who, who funded this lab as a, as a charitable organization has funded an additional, uh, charitable company called the Two Blades Foundation, uh, www.twoblades.org, and it's basically its mission is to uh, do its utmost to ensure that all of the the great advances in the science of the last thirty years, uh, which the Sainsbury Lab has in um, contributed to, can actually be converted into solutions in the field to the most pressing crop problems. So they they work on. Um, Wheat stem rust. They work on. They they help us in uh, interactions with Simplot, bringing in uh, genes to market. They work on this uh, pepper-derived uh, resistance in tomato to Xanthomonas uh, and a number of other uh, really good projects.
3: Mm-hmm. Great. So, if um, the the listeners want to find out more about your research program, wh- where would you use and send them?
1: Well, my my website's a good start. I mean, the Sainsbury Lab website. So, if you You know, if you Google TSL Norwich Jonathan Jones, I'm sure you'll get straight there. Uh, That Two Blades website I mentioned is 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 another good uh, point of departure to look at um, at least how the community of scientists I work with envisage uh, this knowledge being brought to public use. Yeah, those would be good. Two good starts. Good, and uh, I think Two Blades is on Twitter
3: right and yep. I, I should follow them actually and yeah and, you uh, yeah. and uh, i will actually so then... everybody
1: else <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you as well are active on twitter and well so... i do i do tweet a bit although I, I think some people find me a bit boring and predictable because i there's a lot of uh, bemoaning you know the the uh, uh disaster that is brexit oh, okay <laughs> although having said that the you oh. know the, the 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 tiny silver lining around the big dark cloud that is brexit is it may mean that in the uk Will be able to be um, set up a more science-based regulatory framework for GM crops than is currently or imminently feasible in the European Union, which has a, an incredibly um, uh, political uh, and negative uh, view of, of of GM crops. Mm-hmm. yeah, I've been
3: following that as well and, and that's, that's been the impression I've got from several scientists that it may actually uh, result in uh, a, an opening of, of, uh, in the use of genetic engineering genetically engineered crops in England. So that'll be interesting. Certainly will. Yeah. So Jonathan, uh, we, I really appreciate your time and uh, I'm honored to be uh, speaking to you today and so thank you once again for, for joining us. Paul, it's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli and thank you for listening.
2: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to Talking Biotech. At gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A.app.